You are listening to episode number 27 of The Love Noteworthy Show. Welcome to The Love Noteworthy Show, the guide to creating a business, brand, and life you love, taken from the lessons of female entrepreneurs, influencers, game changers, and change makers who have already made it happen. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Love Noteworthy Show. My name is Reese, and I am your host for this wonderful podcast. And I am here today with the lovely Mandy Woodland. And we are going to be talking all about what businesses need to know about technology and law in 2015. But before we dive in, I want to give you a brief introduction to Mandy, because not only is she a very successful digital or virtual lawyer, but she also has her hands in many other projects. It's very multifaceted. Uh, definitely a polymath or a renaissance woman. And why don't we dive right in and talk a little bit more about Mandy. So Mandy is a commercial lawyer with a focus on privacy and technology and owner of Mandy Woodland Law in St. John's, Newfoundland, a virtual law firm providing flat rate services and part-time in-house counsel services, both on and off-site for clients. She acts as a business partner, providing legal services and advice to companies and individuals at all stages from startup through growth and exit. Mandy is the past chair of the National Canadian Bar Association Privacy and Access Law Section, Provincial CBA Section Chair in Newfoundland, and is currently chair of the Newfoundland and Labrador Association of Technology Industries. She is the member of IT Can and iTech Law and speaks regularly on the intersections of law, technology, and privacy. So thank you so much for being here today, Mandy. I'm really excited to talk and learn all about uh, technology and law because I know it's constantly changing and I personally cannot keep up with everything that's going on. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It's an exciting topic to talk about. Yeah, so why don't we, before we start talking uh, more about the technical parts of things, why don't you tell us your story about how you got into business and technology law? Have you always wanted to be a lawyer and what really made you specialize in this and your studies? Well, I did not always want to be a lawyer. I was a scientist first, so I got a biology degree and I worked for the Federal Department of Fisheries for a while. And then I went back to school to study uh, molecular biology. And so I worked in medical research and loved the field, but really hated my job. And I was kind of miserable going to work every day and um, was really thinking about doing a PhD and wasn't sure where to go next. And I had a friend in law school who said, I think you'd love law school. (laughs) I think you'd really, really should be a lawyer. And so I kind of thought about it. And it's one of those life-changing moments where Mm -hmm. when you know you hate what you're doing, you really want big change, and that's what really pushed me. So I went and I wrote the LSAT, and I applied to a couple of schools and got in, and the rest is kind of history. And so what drove you to really focusing in on uh, technology law and privacy law as opposed to anything else? I know in your first year or two of studies, it'll mm-hmm. be more general, so you get kind of a taste of all the different uh, elements of like criminal and tort and all the different types of law. So what drew you to technology specifically right so you know I'm um, in law school it's really fairly general studies and then you can specialize a little bit more in in your last year but coming out even in practice the law society requirements mean you have to do bar admissions and you have to write exams in all those different areas of law so you have to know a little bit of everything to be competent and certified mm-hmm. and so for me um, I started out working in a big firm and doing 
mostly commercial work, some insurance defense. And the more work I did, I think it was by being sort of a younger person. So I'm not saying means I didn't go to law school young because I, I had worked beforehand. But being interested in technology and with my science background, just be, being really interested in always trying new things. And for me, that meant I'd end up getting some really interesting files if something would come in that had a technology slant or a client had a technology-related legal issue. Um, a lot of the more senior people could often look to doing your person and say, I don't understand this. So the tie-in between science and law really made me interested in the technology field. And the more I worked in it, the more I wanted to learn and do within that. Okay, okay. So you mentioned that you started off working for a large firm. Um, and when did you decide... When was that tipping point where you're like, okay, I, I'm ready to start my own firm. What do I do next? And then took the plunge into <laughs> entrepreneurship. Sure. Well, I you know, grew up in an entrepreneurial family. And so like even going to law school, I'd always thought I'd like to work for myself. So um, law really is a learn on the job type field and profession mm-hmm. in law school gives you a lot of background knowledge and really learning how to learn and how to think like a lawyer. Um, but really everything you need to know to be a lawyer, you have to learn on the job. So working at a firm is really ideal. Um, I, I can't imagine starting out on your own straight from school. Lots of people do it and more. Uh, I'm in awe of them because I'm sure I couldn't have. And I learned so much working for other people for just about eight years. Um, I Time flies and... I had spoken to my dad one day uh, a couple of years ago and said, what do you think? You know, you've been running your own business for a while. I think I'm, I think I'm going to go out on my own. And he said, I thought you were going to do that five years ago. <laughs> so that was a really good reassurance for me that it was the right decision. And, and it's always a really common time of transition for a lawyer. So if you're working in a firm, you're often thinking about, partnership or moving on or moving mm-hmm. in house with clients or, or those kinds of things around that seven to nine year mark from both lawyers and firms. So it's a natural transition time. Lots of other people are coming and going and doing different things. And so it was just really the right time for me. And I was fortunate to have some really great mentors. And I also had come across a lovely lawyer in the U.S. who had basically started out a virtual law firm because her husband was in the military and got transferred a lot and she didn't want to have to keep getting called to the bar in different U.S. states because they they would have to get called in. In some cases, you'd even have to go back to school. Mm. So she decided to just work for clients in the state in which she was licensed to practice, but through the internet and by phone. And so she was one of the first virtual lawyers that I'd heard of. I'd read about her in a magazine article. She's fairly young as well. I reached out to her. We started talking, and she had actually started a business teaching lawyers how to open their own virtual law practice. Oh, perfect. So she was a really great resource for me um, when I was starting out. That's great. So what were some of the biggest challenges to starting your own business? I think, like all my clients, everyone has <laughs> endless challenges in starting their own business. You don't know what you don't know, and so you're really reliant on yourself and trying to figure out what are the things that I need to be doing and what are the things I need to learn. Having been within a larger corporation for such a long time, I was quite dependent, of course, on other people and Mm -hmm. used to having a lot of resources. So starting out on my own, it was 
um, big decisions on what to spend money on and what not to, what I could compromise on and what I couldn't, um, whether or not to and how to use other people appropriately in terms of independent contractors or employees, and really just how to figure out the money piece. So in terms of the accounting side, and of course, with a science background, I didn't have a business degree like a lot of my law colleagues, so I'd never taken mm. a business course. Um, and so that's what drove me last year, actually, to pursue. I considered an MBA and instead decided on an MTEI, but that was really, you know, included um, entrepreneurial finance, accounting for innovation, marketing, and all those types of things in a graduate level program that I had never done before, which really helps a lot with my business. Oh, that's great. And so tell us, because you have your own digital firm or virtual firm, um, what was the impact of technology and how you've been able to operate your business and how has it facilitated your business growth? Oh, it's so huge. I know. Um, I wouldn't <laughs> be able to do the job that I do without technology. So for me, my job wouldn't exist, essentially. I The advantage for me in doing what I do is I can act for clients throughout the country. We in Canada have a wonderful mobility agreement amongst a lot of societies. That means if I'm called to the bar and in good standing in one province, I can act for clients in another province and I have a certain number of days that I could work within that province for clients before which then I'd have to register with with that uh, law society. So it gives me a lot of flexibility and freedom, particularly since the privacy work is federally regulated for the most part, Um, most of the privacy work I do. So I can give advice to clients throughout the country. And of course, having to do that before the advent of much of the wonderful technology I use in my practice it just wouldn't have been feasible. So it allows me to charge less. It allows me to work less and work smarter. Mm-hmm. And that use of that various forms of technology means basically I have a happier life and my clients get better, better results. That's great. So why don't we dive into talking about some of the technology and privacy law. I know a lot of people... Uh, especially myself, don't know that much about uh, different topics and go on in our day-to-day lives just posting stuff and not necessarily doing our due diligence with knowing kind of what we can and can't do and more so knowing what our kind of personal rights are online um, in business and just with our personal use. So why don't we talk, yeah, why don't we start off by talking about uh, PIPEDA and I totally forget what it stands for. It's like personal information, privacy, protection. something. Oh. <laughs> I learned it's about this in school. It's <laughs> an electronic documents act. So they're really two separate things. Oh, okay. It's one of the pieces of legislation we have in Canada that it's kind of like two separate acts jammed together. So it's really the privacy piece is the personal information protection part, which is the first chunk of the act. So can you maybe explain to our audience a little bit about what it is and what are some of the key things that both technology users and business owners should know to protect their own personal information and others? Absolutely. So in Canada, that's our federal legislation that governs privacy um, and information protection within a commercial context. So there's a lot of subtext there. I'll just kind of keep it high level, but most provinces don't have their own provincial legislation related to that. Um, there are some that do, 
and if they do, um, and if the federal government has declared it substantially similar, then that's the legislation that acts in the same context, but otherwise Piedmont governs governs the country for those things. And it's really important because it's what governs as a business your use of any personal information of your uh, customers or your clients. So lots of people are unaware, but it's one of the things that means we as businesses that handle any personal information during any commercial activity um, have to have a privacy policy, for example, and that's actually legislated within the Act. There's some of the things people don't quite realize and don't really know some of their obligations around the collection, use, um, and disclosure of personal information of their customers. Hmm. So especially for lifestyle entrepreneurs or people that are kind of coaches or that sort of thing, I think a lot of people don't necessarily have... Um, privacy documents or links to on their site. So what are the implications of if you don't have that? Right. So the legislation says you have to have it if you collect any personal information, which ranges from someone's name or their address all the way to their health information in some cases. There are also some other pieces of legislation that govern health information. But if, Mm. yeah, some lifestyle coaches, for example, collect personal health information from some of their some of their clients. So they need to really, it's really important to be aware of which legislation governs them in their province and, you know, overall in the country and what the requirements are. So it'll, it'll vary depending on what they're doing and what they're collecting. But for me, really the key things that stick out are you really should have a privacy policy. If you collect any information at all, you should have it within your business. It should be on your website. You need to be able to allow people, customers, clients to contact you about their personal information, how you're protecting it, what you actually hold about them, how you're um, deleting it or getting rid of it when you shouldn't have it anymore, so how long you're retaining it, and also making sure that it's really clear what you're collecting and what you're using it for. So those are the two key pieces. There's you know 12 principles that we're guided by under PIPEDA, but mm. the really key pieces for me when someone doesn't have anything is making sure they get a privacy policy in place but also making sure that it's really clear to them and then clear to their customers or clients what personal information they're collecting and what they're doing with it. Okay, okay, good to know. And in terms of this, and I I think I'm going to ask you the same question about Castle, just um, does the law hold true for, say you had a client in uh, the States or in Europe or something like that, um, does that still govern out-of-country clients or customers or is not only for Canadians? In some cases, yes. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So Castle's a little bit different um, than Papita in, in that regard. But, but yes, if you're a business operating in Canada, um, you should really be Papita uh, compliant because one of the pieces in terms of the 12 principles, so we have something called the CSA model code and that's within the legislation as a schedule. And if you look through the CSA model code, a lot of it seems fairly common sense, but these are the principles by which any business should be looking at personal information protection. And if you, whether your clients or customers are in Canada or elsewhere in the world, you may have other obligations outside of Canada, but these things will actually help you comply with legislation elsewhere too. So it's really a really great solid starting point. For sure. And if you have customers elsewhere and you're collecting and using information, especially if those customers or clients are in Europe, you should really get some good advice on what your requirements are 
for those other countries. Mm, okay, that's good to know. So why don't we move on and talk a little bit about uh, e-commerce. So what are some things that small businesses or any businesses may not know when they're setting up an online shop? We have a lot of clients in this space and I really love e-commerce when we talked about, you know, how technology has a lot of impact on business and facilitates business growth. Mm-hmm. E-commerce, of course, is one of the big ways many of us digital entrepreneurs that are running businesses. And so lots of small business, because it has become so easy to get online, whether you're using Shopify or Squarespace, you can, you know, people with pretty limited um, web development knowledge can just get a website up and yeah. start selling things online. And we may not be aware of some of the key legal issues around that. So just making sure you do a lot of the same things you do in store. Um, so, for example, if you had a brick somewhere, you probably know what people would think, oh, yeah, I need a refund policy and I need to explain to people, like, what's happening in this process. Or if they're, you know, using a credit card, it's a little bit different because so if I'm buying from your website, for example and I'm using PayPal or I'm using some sort of credit card provider, well, you as the online um, shop owner should really have really solid terms and conditions that make it clear that I'm then bound by that third party's rules and regulations or terms and conditions and that you're not the one responsible or holding my financial information, for example. Mm-hmm. making it clear whether or not you have cookies on your site, what kind of tracking you're doing within the site, making it clear whether or not you accept returns or how that's processed, and what people can and can't do on your website. So really strong website terms and conditions and then terms and conditions around any sales um, so that I'd have to, you know, click to accept in some sort of pop-up, for example, as I'm going through the checkout process. Those things are often missing, I find, in a lot of small business e-commerce shops and they're really important to protect both you and your customer to make sure it's clear what the terms and conditions are when you're doing business together Mm, that's so good to know i'm taking vigorous notes right now (laughs) well luckily it's recorded i guess but (laughs) Um, all right so uh we have a lot of stuff to talk about today so i'm just i Uh, For the audience, we're going to be talking very top level about a bunch of different things. And if you do have more questions, you can definitely reach out to Mandy or, of course, hire her because she is a digital or virtual uh, lawyer. But um, let's move on to talk about Castle because that seems to be the big thing of, I guess, since like 2009. But really in the past year, it's actually uh, come into force. And so in layman's terms, can you highlight what castle means for businesses this year so for those of you that don't know castle stands for the canadian anti-spam laws and they just came into effect i think july 1st of 2014 right and then they're actually enforceable this year so they're being rolled out in a number of different um, phases of implementation Mm -hmm. so the main piece that would be relevant for online entrepreneurs would have come into effect in july 1st 2014 but there are a couple of other different pieces, one of which came into effect relating to uh, computer software installation on January 1st of 2015. And then there's another piece actually that will come into effect on July 1st, 2017, which is around um, legal action, being able to sue someone for um, sending you spam. So CASEL is yeah, short for Canada's anti-spam legislation. And 
that's because no one wants to say the actual name of the legislation, which is about a page long. <laughs> um, what it means for businesses is it significantly changes the way that you can build your list and use your list. So if you don't have good consent for uh, emailing someone or texting them or sending them instant message on social media, and it's in a commercial context within the message, we call them commercial electronic messages. That's what they're called in the legislation. You really need to have consent. So there are a couple of ways you can get that. Mm-hmm. Um, the I mean is if I'm the list and I want to do something, I really need you to opt in. Unless we've had some sort of relationship in the past two years where there's been two-way communication, then I might have implied consent. So the forecast came into effect, you could send me a random email saying, hey, would you like to listen to my podcast? Would you like to join my list? Now, I would have opt-in to, opt to that unless maybe I bought something different from you in, you know, a year ago. Then you get to send me one message that I would allow me to send out then. But after that, you'd have to either use the phone or send a regular mail. So it's really cutting out that a lot of people are using to build their list. So no one should have been buying email lists anyways, but now mm-hmm. it just makes it um, much more challenging to use those types of lists and you really need to have clean lists or organic growth. One really positive I see is that had a lot of businesses are cleaning up their lists that they should have been doing before, switching over to some sort of CRM, mm-hmm. which again, was good to have in place. Um, most of the big ones, do really well with capital compliance so it takes it out of your hands you don't have to worry about it so yeah for small business is really hard it would never meant to penalize small business and that's not what most of us do as them in any event mm, okay and so again with it it's is it only compatible or do only Canadian companies fall under Castle legislation because I, for example, I still have no. um, some people that are reaching out to me and I'm like, I've never given you my email address before in my life and I'm getting these like sales emails <laughs> and stuff from them. Yeah. So the legislation applies to commercial electronic messages that are sent from Canada. So if you're a business in Canada, it applies to you if you're sending CEMs to people in Canada or outside mm-hmm. and also to businesses sending CEMs to anyone in Canada or anyone they should know is within Canada. So if you're getting them from someone outside, that falls within Castle for sure. Okay. Because and, you're in Canada. So going back to talking about sending commercial commercial electronic messages, does that also apply to things like Twitter? So say you're like following somebody and you're like, hey, I'd love to talk to you about business or something and they've you've never talked to them before. Right. So it's been a challenge to get some interpretation of legislation because, of course, it's still pretty early stage and we're not certain what, how certain pieces will be interpreted. But Industry Canada has made it clear that instant or direct messages on social media that are commercial in nature um, will be captured by capital. So if someone sends you a DM or um, an instant message, then that's covered by capital. There are a lot of exemptions within the legislation, so I should make it clear that there are exemptions for friends and family and exemptions like mm-hmm. within a business and things like that. But ignoring if you don't fall within an exemption, then yes, all of the, and, and the text messaging as well. So um, really, 
SSM or anything like that. Yes, that's all captured. And so the challenge is, there are two pieces of the castle. One is a consent piece, but the other one is a content piece. So what has to be within your message to allow people to unsubscribe and to make it clear like where this consent is coming from. So within a text or an instant message, of course, there's not enough space within the characters to be able to do that. So you have to include a hyperlink to comply with a content piece of Castle. Oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> you need to be able to give people two opt-out mechanisms. They have to be able to opt-out through the same means by which you sent it. So if you texted me, I'd have to be able to opt-out by text plus one other. You'd have to give me some other way to opt-out. I'd have to be able to know who you are um, with your kind of full contact info. So again, all that would have to be in a hyperlink saying, hey, here's me. It could just be to your website or your contact page. But And when someone's doing work on behalf of someone else, so if someone else is list building or someone's hired a company to do that, it has to be really clear that there are two different parties there, one of whom is the person contacting me and the other is the person they're doing it on behalf of. Oh, okay. Um, sorry, I was just thinking about how interesting this will be too for just some of the the upcoming elections, um, just in terms of outreach and contacting people? And well, of course, one of the exemptions is political parties who are fundraising. Oh, <laughs> so they okay. are exempt from Castle. <laughs> oh, well, that changes everything. <laughs> I'm just trying to wrap my head Absolutely. around it right now. I was like, oh my goodness, because I, I just know during election periods um, you get reached out to so much by so many different parties, but I guess that'll still happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It will still happen. Mm. So what are some of the most important things that we need to know about Castle to avoid significant issues in terms of email? You've touched on a few things. Um, Mm -hmm. Is there anything else? So making sure, for example, um, you and I were connected by an individual who connected us both, right? So say, for example, I wanted to reach out to you and I knew um, this other person I'd have to make it clear to you in sending you the first message if I were if it were commercial in nature, like I wanted to tell you something or buy from you. Um, that hey, this other person said it was okay to reach out to you. Here's how I know that. Like so, it's a connection. So there are ways to do those first reach outs instead of cold emailing. Make sure you have a connection. Um, in terms of avoiding significant issues, really, my best advice is making sure you have explicit consent. So if you have a bricks and mortar, have a sign-up sheet so people can give you the information. If you're doing it electronically and you're not using a CRM that does all that tracking for you, make sure you track consent. Because if they're not explicit consent, some of your consents are going to expire and you're going to get yourself in trouble by saying, you know, I had Mandy's consent to send her email, but it was um, implied consent and that extent consent expired or the last time we had a kind of interaction was three years ago you need to know your list needs to be able to clean itself up and if you're just doing that yourself in an excel spreadsheet or a google doc you need to be um, really aware that you need to be tracking consent so the best thing if you can get explicit consent from everyone on your list which means i opted in mm-hmm. to get your list and i've had options to opt out and i haven't that is the best protection to avoid significant issues and if someone complains you need to remove them immediately. So as quickly as you can, get them off there because you have really limited time frames to do that, and it's really important. Um, you're going to get rats on the knuckles if you don't, for sure. But the quicker you comply, the better it will be. 
Okay, good to know, good to know. I know we could ask a million more questions about the anti-spam legislation. <laughs> However, um, I want to move on to talk about a couple other things. And so, um, again, if anybody has questions, you can definitely reach out to us on social media. Um, but why don't we talk a little bit about trademarks? Um, I know a little bit about it, but in Canada, um, can you give us a rundown of what a trademark is and why it's important to register it and what the first steps to doing so are in Canada? Sure. So when we talk about intellectual property, we do talk about a number of different things, which is trademarks, patents, copyrights, industrial designs. Trademarks themselves will include a number of different things, and there's a lot of misconceptions about what they are and what they aren't. Your trademark is really a representation of your brand, and it's really important because, of course, that's what customers really connect to with you. So it could be your brand name, it could be the shape of your brand product or its container, um, it could be your product name itself. So, and it could be a logo, right? So it could be a representation. So it's important to think about the name of your business, the name of your product, and then kind of any visual representations around that. And then that has to be associated with either a wear, which is like a, a physical good, or a service. And so once you have that word or image associated with that good or service, then that's your trademark. And so in Canada, we have a couple of different types of protection. One is just called common law protection, which just means judge-made law. And that gives us as Canadians some common law rights, which means as soon as I create my mark, as long as I'm not infringing on someone else's, mm-hmm. if I create a mark, whether it's word or otherwise, I have some protection um, to that mark. So it may be limited in terms of geographical area or time frame of my or field of use of my of my mark. Mm-hmm. But I do have some limited protection there. And then we have registration. And so really the first step is, is this is all done through the Canadian Intellectual Property Office, which is based in Gatineau. And most of the process is online now, so it's it's good that way. And they're fully evolving to becoming more online. But basically the first step um, is doing a search to make sure no one else owns the mark or something confusingly similar. And then you start to file your application. And once you file your application, then the process process gets going from there. Okay. And so just looking at logos and whatnot, um, you can definitely tell me if I'm incorrect with this, but in under common law, like you have the ability to say, so you could say, oh, the Love Noteworthy show and have the little TM symbol. And that would be uh, kind of trademarked, I guess, under common law. But then if it's actually Absolutely. registered, then you do the R. Correct. You are correct. Okay. So we use the little TM as your notice to the world that you have some common law rights in that mark. Um, anyone can put the TM on anything that doesn't mean it's legit necessarily, but... <laughs> It's usually really strongly recommended if you don't have a registered mark to use the TM as notice to the world that you have some rights to them. Mm, The registration is useful for a couple of reasons. In terms of brand protection, of course, it gets you full national protection for that mark for 15 years. And you can renew indefinitely as long as you're using it and protecting it. So it's really strong protection. Mm -hmm. And if you want to do someone over your mark, it gives you some proof of ownership that then puts the onus on the other person to prove that um, that you don't own it in that particular circumstance. 
It also gives us some rights in other countries that recognize reciprocal intellectual property rights. And in terms of brand protection, I've seen so many issues of of companies who didn't protect their trademarks and then a number of years later wanted to sell their business or franchise it or needed some investment. And when the either investor or the bank or the franchisee or the purchaser went to look, they actually didn't have full protected rights to that mark and they lost out on significant business opportunities. Or Uh, companies have received a cease and desist and had to change their name of their brand or their product and had significant costs incurred in rebranding when if they'd done the proper work in the beginning, they wouldn't have had to do that. So it's really unfortunate. So trademarks are one of the first places I recommend people start when starting a business and thinking of a business or a product name to make sure you're not going to be in that situation where you know, a month or a year or 10 years down the road, you get a cease and desist letter saying you can't use that name anymore. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. And I know, um, just in doing just very basic research too, it's, it's not as expensive as you would think it is going to be for a lot of basic trademark registration. No. So if you're doing it yourself, the application is $250 if you file online. And then at the end of the process, once it's approved, it costs you $200 to register. So in terms of government fees, it's $450 and that gets you 15 years to protect it. Yeah. So it's pretty inexpensive. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And, but that just to clarify, that doesn't protect you or your brand in the U S so you'd have to go through like the U S government as well to. Absolutely. So for, depending on client's product or brand, um, we'll usually sit down and do a really good IP evaluation overall and, in cases where it's important to protect in the U.S., which is a lot, um, again, it's still relatively inexpensive. So we're looking at for one particular type of application, three hundred twenty-five U.S. dollars. Oh, uh, so it's cheaper than cheaper than Canada, and that gives you the same amount of time. And that's for three different classes of things. So the U.S. system is a bit different, but um, yeah, for most people, it's going to cost three hundred twenty-five dollars. That's the government fee. Oh wow! Okay, okay. So I need to go register a bunch of things tomorrow and <laughs> seriously just throw those on the credit card. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about small businesses. Um, how can they protect their intellectual property? Like, do you have any tips for other than registering trademarks for some small things that they can do to kind of protect against bigger businesses or just, yeah. Yeah. So there are a lot of different things. Having an intellectual property strategy from day one is important, and it sounds like overkill for a lot of small businesses, but really it should be part of your business plan, and it should be something you look at regularly. So my first piece of advice, because I do some business consulting too that has really nothing to do with my legal practice, and the first thing we look at is making sure they have the proper team around them. So even if you're a one-person entrepreneur, sole proprietor, not incorporated, you know, as small as small can be, you need an accountant, a lawyer, an insurer, and then, you know, at least a mentor or a peer. (laughs) So having those people that you can pick up the phone and call and say, what am I missing? What is it that I don't know? What should I be looking for? What kind of mistakes should I be avoiding? Is really, really, really important. Even if you only use those people once a year, once every five years, having the right person that you trust and are comfortable with is exceptionally important. So when I think about how small businesses can protect their IP, again, having a good lawyer that you can pick up the phone and call and say, I'm thinking about doing this, are there any implications? Or someone who's making sure 
all those boxes are ticked. So the first step for me would be having that strategy. So understanding what IP you have. And that's really step one because people, especially small business in Canada, have a lot of valuable intellectual property they don't even realize that they have. Mm. So making sure we go down to the list. What copyrights do you have? What trademarks might you have? Do you have anything that's patentable? Do you have any industrial design? If you do, let's roll out a strategy for protecting that. So you might not be able to afford to patent something or you might want to get some trade secrets on something. So we look through all of that, look at budgets and timeframes and what kinds of things are there, and then make a real great plan for the next six months, year, three years, five years. And making sure as well they're protected, like you said, with all those outside entities. So if they have an employer, an independent contractor, making it clear in those contracts that they own the IP and making it clear what those other people can and can't do with it. If they're doing any partnerships or joint ventures with other businesses, making it really clear who owns what IP and what they can and can do with it. You're going to see a repetitive theme here, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> your licensing mm-hmm. your um, product or have someone you're licensing your um, copyrighted materials, for example. You might want to license how you run your podcast or something within your business to someone else who wants to learn how to do it, making it really clear what's your IP, what they can use, what they can't use, how they could use it. So both in a, you know, external and also inside the business model, making sure all your employees have signed non-disclosure and confidentiality agreements and anyone they do business with are doing the same and making sure anything that really needs to be registered is registered. And then on the reverse side, making sure they're not violating anyone else's intellectual property. Yeah, okay. So I tell people, set up, set up Google Alerts. It's free um, to check your name and your product names regularly because if you're not enforcing your own intellectual property, you could lose your rights to it. Um, as companies get bigger, outsourcing that to someone else. So there are companies that do intellectual property monitoring. But for small business, even just setting up a Google Alert will give you some awareness that someone else is using the same name. But basically not choosing your company name or your product names before you know whether someone else owns them is really step one and a critical step most people miss. Mm, Interesting. Okay, so that leads into a question that I have that you suggest we ask. And how can someone even hire or instruct a lawyer? So can you kind of run us through the process of how it all works? (laughs) Absolutely. So it's different in every situation and circumstance, but I do like to talk to people about how to hire a lawyer because for some reason it seems to be this big scary thing for people and the same with accounts or any other professional services. So really it comes down to a relationship to me. Most every professional service provider is competent, the vast majority fortunately. And so they'd be able to do the work for you. It's about who you're comfortable with and who you have feel like you could have a good relationship, someone who understands your business and who understands the field you're in. So if someone's coming to me in a type of business that I'm just not going to be able to understand what they're doing, I'll send them to someone who is, because it's important that your lawyer, your accountant, your insurer understands what what you're doing. I started working with a social media company recently and, you know, it's a little small startup company and, and they said, the difference in working with someone who understands your business is so significant because we don't have to explain everything, mm-hmm. but we don't have the challenge of explaining why something does or doesn't work within our business legally, what fits and what doesn't fit. So 
when you're thinking about hiring a lawyer, you're just starting out, talk to others in your field or other small entrepreneurs in your area, talk to your service providers. So we have different organizations here, like um, the Provincial Organization for Women Entrepreneurs within the provincial government, the Department of Business. Talk to some of those places because they will all have experiences with lawyers and accountants and other service providers, and we'd be able to give you some great advice or referral. And then when you get a list of names of people, you know, you probably have friends, and put it out there on social media. I've had clients who said, yeah, I just said on social media, I need a lawyer that's what I do who should I hire. And, you know, once someone's name popped up three or four times, I said, okay, well, I should probably talk to that person because that's a referral. So then when you want to talk to that person, be very clear in your questions. Don't hesitate from the very first minute of the conversation to say, hey, this is what I do in business. I'm looking for a lawyer. But first, before we even talk, I want to know how you bill. So how are you billing me? Are you billing me for this conversation? If not, um, how do you bill generally? How would we work together? What type of response time do you have? Are you comfortable with email, text, phone? Um, because again, you want someone who's going to work with you the way that you work or the way that you're comfortable working. Mm, So very, you know, um, if you're very non-traditional or you work in a business where you might need legal advice at 11 PM or 2 AM a lot, you need to be very upfront because there's going to be someone else, someone out there who can fill that need for you, but you need to make sure you're getting it filled and having a conversation around budget, especially as a small business, don't hesitate to ask and say, look, I have a really limited budget what can I get within this budget or can we do deferred billing or can we do some sort of alternate billing model people may be open to it but if you don't ask you won't know and so instead of just going along with you know the way it's done where you call and you ask and you scaredly sit at home and wait for a big bill that you don't know what it's going to be (laughs) which is what happens right um just be upfront. so people have had clients call and say oh my god like my lawyer dealt me for um, one email and a three-minute phone call and something else, just say, yeah, of course, you didn't have that conversation up front and that's their traditional way of doing business. So they're not doing anything different than they do every day for every other person. You need to be upfront that that doesn't work for you. So yeah. it's really just doing what you do in every aspect of being a you know, kick-ass entrepreneur and running your business and asking for what you want. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in business for yourself if you weren't out there doing that in the first place. That's great so advice. do it with your service providers. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, so I just have a couple more questions for you. Um, in terms yeah. of social media, what are some legal things that we may not know about using social media for business? Oh, so many things. <laughs> <laughs> what are you like top two Making or three? Sure. Yeah, my top couple of things. Um, the number one is always around employees. So you, if you have part-time or full-time employees or your contractor who's running your social media for you, making sure you as a business owner still always have access to all of the accounts and all of the passwords and you have really clear brand control over what you're putting out there. So that's like a hybrid business and legal piece of advice, but it's really important because if you need to let someone go, you need to be able to change those passwords yourself immediately before you do that. Um, we've seen it time and time again with various brands who've gotten burned on social media by terminated employees. And it's because as business owners, we get really busy and we should be delegating, but there are certain things we need to make sure we have control over, which is access to those accounts. Because Mm -hmm. right now 
in this world, your social media image is very, very important to your brand. Mm -hmm. The other thing is making sure you've got clear guidelines set so and documentation around that. So again, if you have someone else doing it for you, you can't blame them if you didn't instruct them properly on what to put out there and what not to put out there and what is a line that they can and can't cross in terms of being true to the brand versus defaming someone or saying something illegal or something that's going to get you in trouble as a business owner, Mm -hmm. making sure they know responsiveness times to customers on social media, whether you do or don't respond to customers through Twitter, for example, being clear on what your policies are and having good policies that you enforce. And then making sure you understand social media terms of use. So running, um, Running contests on social media is a really big one that trips up a lot of businesses because all of the different platforms have different rules around that and there are different laws. So making sure you or your lawyer or someone in your business understands those and you're not in violation of any of those terms when you're running a contest, for example. Mm, Okay, that's so good to know. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mandy. Uh, This has been very insightful, our conversation today. And I know I I feel like I have like a million follow up questions, but um, (laughs) we'll have to save it for another time. (laughs) Um, But I just have one final question for you that we ask to all of the guests on the show. So my final question is, what is your number one tip for how others can be more love noteworthy in their business and with their brand and in life? And I love this question. <laughs> I, I love what you do. And Thank you. <laughs> into this. Um, and for me, when I really reflected on that, it's how I can be more noteworthy in my business and my life and how I see others being able to do that mm-hmm. is having, whether it's a personal board of directors or what my friend and I call an FEO, which is a <laughs> friend executive officer, someone <laughs> who is really your check and balance. And this person who calls you out on when you're not being true to yourself or your brand or you're not um, being someone who's doing something unique. And so having that person, that's my number one tip of being able to be more love note with you in business and life is someone who's going to call you out when you're not being that. Yeah, that's great advice. Definitely having... I like that FEO. (laughs) (laughs) We love it. We use it a a lot. Um, Yeah, so we have once a month... um, big check-ins and then kind of regular daily ones, but a really big one where we actually give each other homework and talk about being authentic and sincere and creating lasting impressions with our audience. So it really ties in well with your being love noteworthy. That's great. Well, again, thank you so much, Mandy, for being on the show. Uh, For those of you that would like to reach out to Mandy, I'll have all of her contact information in the show notes on uh, the website. And I hope that you all got some great information and have some homework to do over the course of the next couple weeks in terms of upping your game with technology and law. And definitely registering those trademarks and just being more cognizant of the legislation that's come into effect with Castle. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. This has been another episode of the Love Noteworthy Show, and we will see you next week. Thanks, Mandy. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Love Noteworthy Show. I really appreciate you taking time to fit this into your schedule. And if you really liked what Mandy Woodland was talking about today, and she did emphasize the importance of having a lawyer and just really setting yourself up for success from the beginning of when you start your business, she actually offers a fantastic damsel in defense program, and it's a legal course for entrepreneurs 
that is self-paced. You get everything that you need to know to protect your business and plug and play templates, two live question and answer calls per month, as well as a lifetime of access to her private membership site. So this course is like outfitting your business in a shiny, affordable armor, hence the damsel in defense. With the course, uh, you're going to receive four legal templates with PowerPoint tutorials, and those include a client agreement, product purchase agreement, terms and conditions, and privacy policy, as she talked about in the episode today, as well as PowerPoint presentations with the audio on trademarks, copyright, entity formation, employees versus independent contractors, confidentiality slash non-disclosure agreements, um, as well as, like I said, the lifetime access to the private membership site, two live Q&A calls every month, 10% off all other legal templates, access to a private Facebook group, as well as other bonuses. And so if you're interested in doing this program, definitely talk to me about it. It is only $14.97, which is a fantastic deal considering lawyers can cost anywhere from two to $500 an hour for their legal expertise. And you're getting a lifetime membership for this. And if you are interested in doing this program, definitely talk to me. Please reach out and email me at hello at resims.com and we can hook you up from there. So thank you so much for listening again. Have an amazing week and I appreciate you. And don't forget to stay love noteworthy. 